downloading this podcast from the Freedom Centre Church in Preston. In the mid-1800s, Vienna General Hospital identified a real problem. What they found was that the doctors' wards had three times the mortality of midwives' wards. And it was such a big problem that pregnant women in Vienna at the time had begun to choose to give birth in the street rather than risk going into hospital and being treated by a doctor. And so in 1846, a man whose name was Ignaz Semmelweis, or at least something like it, was appointed to a senior role at the hospital and he set about trying to solve that problem. And he quickly noticed that the mortality rate of mothers had increased in the same year that the medical study of dead bodies had been introduced at the hospital. And so he concluded, well before anybody had discovered or understood germs, that something from these bodies was being transferred to the mothers. And so he introduced a policy that required doctors and medical students involved in autopsies to wash their hands thoroughly before they treated patients. Almost immediately, the mortality rate of young mothers dropped almost tenfold and hundreds of lives were saved. But although he knew that handwashing worked, he didn't know why handwashing worked. He had no scientific evidence to explain why that was effective. And so his ideas were criticised and they were rejected by the medical community. One prominent doctor at the time has claimed to have said, doctors are gentlemen and gentlemen's hands are always clean. This wider sort of medical profession didn't understand. They couldn't see the proof and the report that he had didn't fit with their understanding of the world. And so they didn't believe it. And because they didn't believe it, thousands of lives were unnecessarily lost. This morning, we're going to look at what happens as Christians when we're challenged to believe the unbelievable and what happens when we choose to believe, even when we can't see or we don't understand what God is doing. So let's open the Bible and we're going to read from John chapter 20 and I'll give you a moment to find it. This is the point in the Bible where Jesus has been crucified and uh, his empty tomb has been found and he has at this point appeared to almost all of the disciples, all by one of the disciples. Thomas, for whatever reason, wasn't there. And so he missed out. And and so the disciples go to Thomas to go and explain what they've seen and what's happened. And so we'll pick up in John chapter 20, verse 24. It says, now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the 12, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here, see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Lord Jesus, I just pray this morning that you would speak to us. Father, that you would reveal to us the truth about who you are, the truth of your resurrection and your life 
Jesus, what you accomplished on the cross. I pray that you would just speak into each of our hearts this morning, that it would be your word that we hear. In your name, Jesus. Amen. Now, I've got some sympathy with uh, with Thomas in this story because all of the other disciples have just seen Jesus. And if you read back, you see that when they saw him, they also inspected his wounds just to make sure that he was really back. And so Thomas in this story doesn't really ask to do anything that the other disciples haven't done. He's not asking for any extra proof of the resurrection. And yet this is the moment that defines him. He is known for centuries afterwards as Doubting Thomas. This is the man who spread the gospel far into Asia, who was um, likely to have been martyred in India about 39 years after this story takes place. And, and to be clear, Thomas is about as great a man of faith as any of us could reasonably aspire to be. He is literally a saint. And yet this one moment, this one moment of doubt, this instant reaction is what has come to define him for so many people for so many centuries. And I think, in a way, we can probably all relate to Thomas a little bit. The, the British in particular are sceptical people. We don't like to be fooled, we don't like to be taken in, we don't like to be deceived. There was a, a study of consumer habits recently that showed that Britons are some of the most sceptical consumers in the world in terms of trusting brands and trusting what they're being sold. But that's nothing new. As far back as uh, 1872, the Reverend William Fraser was writing about the tendency of British scepticism, which is no surprise given that just a few years earlier, Thomas Huxley, who was a real advocate of Darwin, announced that scepticism is the highest of duties. Blind faith, the one unpardonable sin. As people, we want evidence. We want facts. We want things to be proved, even when, as we saw with Semmelweis, the insistence on evidence sometimes means that we miss out on the truth. And that is as true today as it ever was. Uh, there was a, a survey recently of British social attitudes that concluded that while trust in religious institutions is high, no, while trust in religious institutions is waning, trust in science and scientists is high. And I'm not going to um, go down the whole faith and science route. Uh, they're not opposed to each other and that kind of comparison is sometimes misleading and unhelpful. But as Christians, we are invited to believe things that, to a logical, rational mind, can seem unbelievable. And what we do when we encounter those unbelievable things will quite often shape our faith and shape our lives. And so I want us to look this morning at the story of Thomas, because the resurrection of Jesus is the single most significant, life-changing, foundational unbelievable thing that Christians believe and how we respond to that story determines how we live our lives and how we approach every other impossible situation. So we're going to look at Thomas in, in a little bit of detail and then look at how we can learn from that and what lessons we can learn from him in our own lives and to learn from him here we need to understand why he was sceptical. We need to identify his mistakes so that we can learn from them. And so at this point, we know that he'd missed the gathering of the rest of the disciples um, earlier on, and we, we don't know why he missed it, but here they all are now, and they're telling him this incredible news. And I think the first point is, if he had read and understood scripture, if he'd read and understood what the Bible had to say, the promises of the Bible, he might have found it easier to believe. 
If you look through the Old Testament, Isaiah 53, Psalm 22, Hosea, arguably Jonah, all of those and plenty of others prophesy or allude to the resurrection of the Messiah. Not only that, but Jesus himself had predicted it. The Bible in the Old and the New Testament is full of promises and predictions about the death and resurrection of Christ and what that means for us in our lives. And perhaps if Thomas had really understood the scripture, and I'm not claiming for a minute that I understand it better than him, but we do have the benefit of hindsight. Perhaps if he'd really understood scripture, he might have found that Jesus' resurrection made just a little bit more sense. And so the first lesson to us from Thomas is to understand the promises of Scripture, to understand the promises in Scripture of who God is and what he can accomplish. Secondly, though, he didn't trust the testimony of his friends. A group of his closest friends had come to him, all with the same testimony. They back each other up. Everything they say is in line with the promises in Scripture. What they say is in line with what has been prophesied. And the, the, the Matthew Henry commentary on this passage suggests that it was not their veracity that he questioned, but their prudence. In other words, he believed um, that they thought they were telling the truth, but they'd been too easily taken in that they were naive and they were gullible. Now, perhaps he was too proud to learn from the experience of others. And so there's our, our second kind of quick lesson here is that as Christians, we need to, yes, test what we are told against scripture. Yes, evaluate against what's in the Bible, but we must also be humble. We need to be teachable and we need to be prepared to learn from those around us. Thirdly, though, um, not unlike those first doctors who heard Semmelweis's opinions on, on germs, the news of Jesus' resurrection didn't fit with the way that Thomas understood the world. Certainly not physically and perhaps not spiritually. His basic understanding of the world included, and not unreasonably, the, the fairly scientific assumption that people who were dead stayed dead. It appears to be very much a natural law. Everything dies. And so when he hears that Jesus is alive, his basic assumptions about the world are challenged because people shouldn't come back to life. But maybe there was something else going on as well. Maybe the disciples were slow to understand the significance of the death of Jesus and, Th and Thomas slower than the rest because they expected him to work a little bit differently. In the, the upside down, topsy-turvy kingdom of God, the last shall be first. The king is a servant and the winner of the battle is hung on a cross. And to the first century Jews expecting a saviour to come and liberate and to overthrow and to usher in a new era of victorious living, this was perhaps a little bit much to take in. The crucifixion didn't look to Thomas like a victory or justice. And the resurrection didn't look much like science. So Thomas didn't understand maybe the scripture, he didn't make himself humble and teachable, and he didn't understand the upside down principles of the kingdom of God. And so he didn't believe. As a result, he missed out. He missed out on the, the week-long party that the other disciples must have been having, the, the week of excitement and praise and worship of celebration and glorification of God. And he missed out, therefore, on his primary purpose to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. There was a week of opportunity to participate in worship and praise that he was not able to because he didn't believe. 
But more than that, he missed the opportunity to participate in the kingdom of God. Again, the Matthew Henry commentary on this passage says that Christ's kingdom was to be set up among men immediately upon his resurrection. What that means is that when Jesus declared that the kingdom of God was near, he didn't mean it's coming relatively soon, relative to thousands of years of human history up to that point. The kingdom of God is not something that we are still waiting for. It has been set up on earth. It was set up on earth immediately at the resurrection for us to belong to, to participate in, to advance and to enjoy. Freedom from the slavery of sin, reconciliation with God, liberation from the bondage of bitterness and unforgiveness and condemnation. We are invited to participate in the righteousness and the justice and the peace of the kingdom of God as soon as we accept the resurrection of Christ. And crucially, Thomas didn't believe that death was overcome. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. He goes on to say, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. So for that week where Thomas couldn't accept the resurrection of Jesus, his faith was futile. His time with Jesus up to that point had meant nothing. The previous three years had ended in disaster and his eternal future was in doubt. Because to the Christian, the resurrection of Jesus is everything. So that's Thomas. But what about us? Sometimes, as we've said, we we can identify with Thomas. We're a little bit like Thomas. I don't think I know anyone who professes to be a Christian who would say that they don't believe in the resurrection. It is a core foundational belief. But I do think that sometimes our actions and our attitudes can betray something slightly different. As Christians, I think as, as humans, we encounter all manner of impossible situations broken relationships, the consequences of sin that we've committed, the consequences of sin committed against us, the stress and anxiety of work or relationships or finances. And the way that we approach all of those things stems from our understanding and belief in the victory of Christ in the resurrection. Through the resurrection of Jesus, we are invited uh, into relationship with a God who intervenes personally in both our immediate present and our eternal future. He overcomes the impossible in our own lives. In the kingdom of God, there is an end to suffering, to pain, to guilt, to condemnation. There is healing and there is restoration and there is the promise of greater things to come. Now, I don't know this morning what impossible situation you're facing. It might be that as you as you sit there this morning, you're holding on to some sin, something in your past, something that you've done that you just don't feel like you have been forgiven for, that you can't get past. Maybe, as the song puts it, you are overwhelmed by the weight of your sin. Now, the Bible is absolutely clear. Through the resurrection of Jesus, your sins are forgiven. John Piper says that forgiveness is the first and most basic longing of our hearts. 
and when we meditate on and believe in the resurrection, that longing is satisfied and we get to enjoy fulfilment in Jesus. As Tom said last week, grace is freely given. God's grace is freely given. It's a gift that we can't earn, we cannot work for it, we can't pay it off, we can't be good enough, we can't pray hard enough, we can't attend church enough to deserve God's grace or to repay what he has done. When you're a Christian, you are made righteous, you are justified by Christ, you are robed in the righteousness of Jesus. The resurrection of Jesus gives us reconciliation with God and sometimes it's hard to take in because the idea of free grace doesn't make much sense in a world where there's no such thing as a free lunch. But I want to encourage you, if that's you, if you feel bogged down, weighed down by your past, by sins in your past, by things you've done, I want to encourage you to take time to meditate on this truth, that in the resurrection of Jesus, your sins are not counted against you. And to prove it, it's made clear in scripture in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 17. If anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. All this is from God who reconciled himself to us through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. Maybe though you're struggling with the consequences of, of somebody else's wrongdoing, somebody else's sin against you. Perhaps you've been mistreated or taken advantage of or misrepresented or betrayed. And again, the good news of the death and the resurrection of Jesus is that justice has been done. The wages for sin is death. That death will either be bodily and eternal for the person who doesn't accept Jesus or has been fulfilled in the crucifixion of Jesus for the person who does. Either way, God has seen your hurt. He doesn't overlook it. He knows your pain. He knows your disappointment. He knows your desire for justice to be done. He is a God of justice. But when we trust in his divine justice, in the justice of the death and the resurrection of Jesus, God allows a way for us to move beyond that hurt, to move beyond that bitterness and into a new life. God is just and sin is punished, but perhaps God is inviting you this morning to trust that he is the judge, that his perfect justice will be done and has been done and that maybe, maybe it's time to place your trust in the death and resurrection of Jesus and let go of bitterness and unforgiveness in your own life. Perhaps your situation is not so much spiritual as physical. Maybe sickness, finance, relationships. It might just feel to you this morning like your path is blocked by mountain after insurmountable mountain. I'm not gonna tell you that when you accept Jesus, when we understand the resurrection of Jesus, that all of that stuff goes away. I'm not gonna tell you that as a result of the resurrection, you'll be guaranteed earthly healing or wealth or popularity or prosperity. But I will promise you that through the resurrection of Jesus, we are guaranteed healing and an end to pain and suffering and illness eternally with God. We are guaranteed heavenly treasure. 
We are guaranteed, redeemed, restored, reconciled relationships with God, with each other and inside of ourselves. Life can be really, really hard. And I don't want to belittle that or do that down. I know that people are going through some really, really hard times. And I don't want to dismiss um, the possibility even that God might and is able to intervene in the earthly present with a miraculous, impossible solution to your situation. He may well do, and I pray that he does. But regardless of what God does in the present, we can be confident and bold about our eternal future. Paul says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. The glory that is made available to us through the resurrection of Christ. So whatever you're going through this morning, whatever your impossible situation, know that through the resurrection, the glory of Christ will be revealed in us, in any circumstance. And that is the reason why this is good news. Before the resurrection, if we have a look in, uh, in John 20, verse 19, we can see that the disciples were hopeless and fearful. Before they'd seen the risen Jesus, they were locked in a room in fear of the Jews. And yet after that encounter with the resurrected Jesus, they became confident and bold. They travelled the world and joyfully, worshipfully endured slander and prison and beatings and martyrdom to spread the good news of the resurrection because they understood the eternal consequences. They understood the glory that was to be revealed through the resurrection. And so we have a choice, like Thomas, to accept the reality of the resurrection and to live in the fullness of God's kingdom here on earth or to doubt the presence of God's kingdom because we haven't seen it manifest or we don't understand it or because it doesn't quite fit with the way we understand the world to work. We don't want to miss the chance to participate in the kingdom of God, here, on earth, in the present. There might be part of your life where you know you need a breakthrough of the kingdom of God, where maybe you don't feel the peace of Jesus, where you know that you need to trust in and meditate on the resurrected Christ. Jesus said to Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. You might not be able to see the work of Jesus in your life at the moment. You might not be able to see a way through your present or away from your past or into your future. But Jesus says, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. The Bible gives us a really, really simple prayer for those moments. And it's the one that I'm going to leave you with. A prayer when we're desperate, when we're facing the impossible, when only a breakthrough of the kingdom of God made possible by the resurrected Jesus will do the job. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Lord Jesus, I thank you that you are a God of the impossible. That through the resurrection Jesus, you glorify yourself and you bring us into relationship with you so that you can do the impossible in our lives. 
Thank you, Jesus, that whatever situation we're facing, whatever our struggles, whatever it is that we, we don't seem to be able to overcome, Jesus, that you can redeem any situation, that you are a God of the impossible, that you promise us in eternity a painless existence, no suffering, no tears, only joy and praise and worship. And so, Jesus, I pray this morning that you would just make the reality of the resurrection a reality in our hearts. Lord, that you would put a resurrection spirit in us. Jesus, that we would go in boldness and in confidence, knowing that you have overcome, that you have conquered death, that you have overcome the grave, and that therefore there is nothing that we need to fear. In your name, Jesus. Amen. For more information about our church or to access more of our resources, please visit thefreedomcentre.com.